welcome back to Big Mama Hex podcast. Today, I'm super, super excited. I have my friend Carol with me, and we're going to be talking about all things Deitch, the Deitcherai, um, music, organs, all kinds of amazing things that we're going to be talking about with Carol. So welcome, Carol. Hi, it's nice to be here. Love Thank talking you. to you. Oh, me too. Carol Carol and I met, um, gosh, I don't even know the origin of how we met. Uh, we must have met like maybe the Heritage Center, some kind of event. Well, or- I know where we met. Do you? Oh, we were a guest on this, on our, on the Pennsylvania German Hour with the Sanger Corps, with the Dolbach Sanger Corps. We do a, a monthly TV show and Patrick asked you to be the guest. And Penny Olive had just come out, so you brought your new book with you, and and we talked afterward. And it was from that point on we were friends. Oh wow, Carol! I had no idea that's where we originally met. Mm-hmm. I thought I had met you in the ethers of the, all the things that we are always doing with the vending and stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, that was a very exciting experience for me to be on that show. That was like a moment in my life that was very very exciting and um I remember my grandmother watching me and she's Olive who inspired the book so it was a really powerful moment for me so that's so cool I met your grandmother one time um at the folk festival after after I had met you at the tv show oh um, yeah uh I saw you at the Kutztown Folk Festival and your grandmother was there at the time yeah that was me when she came with us that one time yep it's so hot that it was hard, but that's so cool. You got to meet her. Mm-hmm. She was, she was something else. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's funny. I was interviewing our mutual friend, Doug, and we were talking about how um the Pennsylvania Dutch are so humble. And I was like, what? <laughs> that was my, that was my special person of the culture. And she was certainly very, very proud and very, she was like a cheerleader for all things Pennsylvania Dutch. So, but it's, it's interesting for the most part though. Yeah. Like mostly, mostly humble, but so Carol is a, um, her maiden name is Diefenbach. So she's of the Diefenbach, um, family, which is a very well-known family in the Pennsylvania Dutch culture. Um, we have been given so many wonderful gifts by the Diefenbachs, including, I must mention, uh, the chips, of course, Diefenbach chips that are very, very natural and not a lot of processing and they're amazing very very delicious chips um and also Diefenbach organs which is also a humongous gift and you've done a lot of work um discussing the history of the organs as well um which is really cool do you have any of that stuff online maybe I can put it in the show notes if people could would like to go and and listen to that talk about it um the Diefenbach Organ Preservation Society is a non-profit that we set up to help um, public places in Berks County that have the organs um, help repair and maintain those organs. Uh, a lot of times those organs are in a church, uh, mm-hmm. usually a small church that is struggling anyway with their finances. So um, restoring or uh, keeping their 200-year-old pipe organ up to date is not high on their priority list. Right. So we set up a nonprofit in, in 2014, actually. Um, and, um, and we help those um, public places 
specifically, I guess we'll talk a little bit about this later, but um, specifically churches, a few churches and the Burke's History Center that have the Diefenbach organs. Oh, wow. That's incredible. And what is the nonprofit called? The Diefenbach Organ Preservation Society. Okay, we cool. have a Facebook page, so check us out. Yeah, I'll definitely link that. That's so cool. Um, and so if, if it is okay with you, I was thinking maybe I could play a clip um, of you playing one of the organs. I found a clip on your Facebook because it's a really, it's a very unique sound that I think many people don't, would maybe not even have experienced before. It's a very cool thing to experience. I'm sure, especially in person. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, people will think of a pipe organ and picture huge pipe organ, like they saw the pipe organ at Radio City Music Hall or um, or at Wanamake, uh, the old Wanamaker store in Philadelphia and go, wow, now that's a big pipe organ. The pipe organs that my ancestors built were much, much smaller than that. And, um, and in fact, I have one here in my home. Um, and the ones that are in the churches are a little bigger than this. Mm-hmm. But uh, but they're still not huge, so uh, it's definitely an antique um, instrument. That's very cool. I love the sound of those. I, I we used to go to the Wanamaker show every every year, and we would always go for the live show. I loved the. I mean, it's just like it encompasses your whole body. You're immersed in the experience. Um, but like talking more about the Diefenbox, you had gifted me this this amazing book a few years ago. Uh, I think it was Mastoff, right? Put this out. Yes. Uh, and this is your grandfather, is that correct? Uh, yes, it's uh, filled with writings uh, that my grandfather, Victor Diefenbach, did. And if I could tell you a little funny story about that, I went to Millersville to college. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, of course, I knew that my grandfather was a writer. He wrote a column in the Lebanon Daily News in the dialect for many, many years. And um, uh, let me also point out that my grandfather died when I was around 10 years old. So don't, you know, I have a limited memory of him, but I knew that he was a writer and I knew he wrote other articles that were in um, like the, um, the Pennsylvania Dutchman and so on. Um, But um, you know, I, I knew he, did that but it wasn't that meaningful to me at the time right but when I went to Millersville I took a class I was a math major in college and I had very heavy classes and I had the ever it was a public or a state university so there were different requirements in different areas of study um, that you had to take in order for you to get your degree so if there was ever an easy class I could take to um, to fulfill those obligations, I would do it. Um, you know, don't call me lazy. I had enough classes to, right? Uh, you know what I mean. So I just I know. something that wasn't quite as heavy as my math classes. So I saw a class. I think it was called the um, Pennsylvania Dutch Culture. And it was taught by Professor Richard Beam. Yes. And of course, I mean, that his name meant nothing to me at the time. 
uh, he was a German professor at this school. And um, the first day of class, he's going through the class roster. And of course, I wasn't married at that time. And he came to Carol Diefenbach and he looked at me and he said, <laughs> do you have any idea who Victor Diefenbach was? And I said, yes, he was my grandfather. Wow. Let me tell you, I had a new best friend at Melbourne because yes. um, Professor Beam loved his work. And and he is the one that put that book together. That you yeah. um, Yes, Gerald Bauer, Hot Epic Suit Saga. The old farmer has something to say. And he called him Gerald Bauer because that was the name of his column in uh, the Lebanon and Daily News. And that's gotcha. Drawing on the front of that book, that little uh, my my grandfather was also an artist of sorts, and uh, that was his own drawing of himself. That's uh, very cool. So that's that's how Richard Beam and I became friends. Oh, that's so neat! Yeah, I see the illustrations in here. I love them; they're very cool. Mm -hmm. My my husband's obsessed with Ella Spiegel, so it's funny because there's an Ella Spiegel too. <laughs> He's always trying to convince me that Ella Spiegel needs more attention and I should like paint him, but that's very, very cool. So, so wow. What was it like for you? So you must've been about 18 or 19, 20 um, to be in this class and be presented by Richard Beam, um, Pennsylvania Dutch culture and, and having grown up in the culture, a lot of people experience, you know, when they're younger, um, maybe not you know, kind of like, it's just your normal. So it's not that special to you, but did it sort of make you feel, um, did you feel a connectedness to it then of feeling oh, like a lot of yeah. things that we talked about? That's how I grew up. So it really that it wasn't like a foreign concept to me at, right. all, at all. Um, what I did learn more about then were the Amish mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the Mennonites too, although I grew up with a lot of Mennonites. Um, I, I didn't really grow up around many Amish people. I of course had seen them. It's not like I didn't know who they were, but they didn't live in, um, in this area, at least, um, not very many of them. There are a few more. I live in Berks County in Burnville specifically. So it's not like I see a buggy when I drive down Route 183. Right. <laughs> Get up to the Bethel area. Yeah, then the buggy's there. And Myerstown is not that far away. And, uh, of course, there, there are many Amish people there. But I learned more about their culture in that class. So oh, that's say that would be one specific thing that I can tell you that I learned much more about. So did you, um, I want to talk about how you, your upbringing and your childhood, but I was just curious, did you end up staying in touch with Richard Beam after you finished the class? Oh, I did because, nice. um, as, uh, one thing that I do is I'm the accompanist for the Dolbach Sanger Corps. And, uh, as I said earlier, we do a, a monthly TV show. Well, when it's not 2020, we did a <laughs> monthly TV show. <laughs> where, this, where the Sanger Corps sang for part of the show. And then um, our host is our friend, Patrick Dunmoyer, and he would have a guest for the other portion of the show. Um, 
But another thing that the Sanger Corps does is if any local churches have a Pennsylvania Dutch service, then they will often ask the Sanger Corps to come and, and provide music for their, their Pennsylvania Dutch service. And, um, and then the public is invited to those. They were usually on a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday evening. And, um, and Richard Beam and his wife, as long as he was physically able to do it, they would always come to those um, Pennsylvania Dutch services. And he knew who I was right away. I mean, we, so we connected that way. And then actually, then after he passed away, the Sanger Corps was actually asked to uh, perform at um, part of his memorial service. And so it was a great honor to do that. Oh, wow. That's incredible. That's really cool. Yeah. Especially because he, he meant so much to me, uh, you know, yeah. I really felt uh, a connection there. So. That's very neat. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and what your childhood was like since you were so immersed in all of the things that we are all so enamored by that are so special about our culture? Um, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Oh, certainly, certainly. Um, I grew up in Berks County. Um, I grew up in a, the village of Host. It's called Host. And it's uh, be halfway between Womelsdorf and Rarersburg. Um, it's northwestern Berks County. And Host um, is kind of one of those places. There, there is a sign, I guess, on each end of Host. But... It's not like it's a town or anything. We didn't have a post office or anything like that. And you kind of didn't really know when you were in host and when mm -hmm. you post. But if you drove from Womelsdorf to Rearsburg, you definitely went through host. Um, anyway, um, I lived about not quite a mile off of Route 419, which goes right through the, the village. Um, and um, I actually was born at home. Um, and actually, that this was kind of cool because my father was actually born in the same house that I was born in. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Now, um, different people owned it over the years. But um, when my dad was one of 14 children, and he was kind of in the middle of the pack, and mm -hmm. all of those 14 or of the of the 14 children they were all born in that house except for the oldest one and the youngest one so and if you would see this house you wouldn't think that 16 people lived there at one time but they did or well i guess technically 15 because the youngest hadn't been born yet but um it you know it's it wasn't that huge of a house um, my father, uh, my father did not speak English until he went to school. Um, and so they, they just always spoke Pennsylvania Dutch at home. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, and my grandfather, well, again, Victor, that we were talking about a little while ago, uh, that was, I don't think he ever would have spoken English if he didn't have to. Yeah. Um, 
but he could, you know, but um, so that, that's how my dad grew up. But um, now my parents, both my mother and father could fluently speak Pennsylvania Dutch. My mother, my mother probably didn't speak it as well as my father. She understood it. Um, But, you know, I mean, my father, if he was with anyone that spoke Pennsylvania Dutch, they would be speaking Dutch. They wouldn't be speaking um, English. Um, My mother, maybe not so much so, but um, certainly she grew up learning it. Um, We kind of always said that uh, my parents didn't speak Dutch to each other unless they didn't want us to understand something. Um, But anyway, um, I'm the youngest of seven children. And but um, the first, the oldest five siblings of mine are older than me. I mean, much older than me. My oldest brother was a senior in high school when I was born. And first five were each two years apart. And then there was a gap of six years and then another four years till I came along. So I basically grew up with my youngest brother and the others were out of the house soon after. Um, I mean, by the time I remember things, it was just my brother and I at home. Um, my mud, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm jumping around here. So forgive no, me. That's okay. No, go for it. Um, one thing about my mother's family, I, and I want to point this out. Um, my mother's maiden name was Rothermole. And I have to tell you a funny story. One time on Facebook, I said I was going to a Rothermole reunion and our mutual friend, Doug Maidenford said, Hey, we have Rothermoles in our background. So um, for his birthday this past year, uh, he had challenged everyone to come up with something special uh, for his birthday. And so I traced our um, Rothermole backgrounds to see if if our lines ever crossed. Now, this is easy to do because somebody wrote a really wonderful Rothermole book. So it was really easy to trace our backgrounds. And um, and it turns out that his seventh great-grandfather, Rothermole, was my sixth great-grandfather, Rothermole. So, um, and that was back in Germany. I forget the name of the city at this point, but um, we've called each other cousin ever since that. Yeah, incredible. Uh, um, my my uh, one thing special about my mother's family, my mother's mother was a Gref and she grew, grew up outside of Burnville on the Gref farm, which um, a lot of people know where Christmas Village is outside of mm-hmm. or they've heard of it. Well, that was the Gref farm. So my grandmother actually grew up on that farm long before it was Christmas Village. Um, anyway, is she related to Don Greth? I wonder he was an artist as well. I wonder I about that. I don't know that. I don't he know. owned, he owned the Dite Jack for a very short time between Johnny Ott and, um, Steve Stetzler. Um, that would be really interesting. We really love Don Greth's work. I'll have to check back with you at some point. Yeah, um, I don't know that. I don't know that. He's a really cool artist did a lot of really great, like hack science and stuff like that. Wow, that's really cool. So you have this rich, rich history in that area, and um, 
I just can't, I can't wrap my head around having four children at this place. I just can't imagine that, but that's so wild. So, you One know. One other thing I wanted to say is I do remember visiting my grandfather, Victor. Um, he, I never knew my grandmothers. So I only knew him again. I, I was 10 years old when he died and he was in his, I don't know, late seventies or early eighties. I kind of forget, but I remember going to visit him. He lived in Bethel outside of Bethel, North of Bethel, actually near the blue mountain. And he, he only wanted to speak Pennsylvania Dutch. Now, my brother and I did not understand Pennsylvania. Right. Um, and my my father would ask him, would you please speak English mm-hmm. so children know what you're saying? And I don't think he did. I just don't remember him doing that. But yeah. This was really fascinating because he he did all kinds of crafty things. You would have liked my grandfather, I think. Yeah. He he would carve he carved things. Um, he he wrote great articles. He would paint. He was a painter. Um, he just he. I think there is a lot about my grandfather that certainly at the time I didn't appreciate, but um, I do now much more so. But getting back to me growing up, when I was a teenager, it was not cool to have a Pennsylvania Dutch accent. Right, yes. Growing up in host, guess what? You just did have a Pennsylvania <laughs> accent. And uh, I think, I still think that you and I should do Ask a Pennsylvania Dutch Woman. Yes, when and where, baby. And Let's do it. We can surely put it on just as well as the guys can. Absolutely. When, when I grew up, uh, again, I, it was not cool to have a Pennsylvania Dutch accent. And when I went to college, I guess I just did my best to not have one. And I really think I lost most of it then. Um, Can you pause for a second, Carol? So, so we kind of skipped over the part. Did you actually pick up the language if you had, or did you just have an English you had the Dutch accent, what? but it was- I, I should I should say that uh, I had. Well, I can get into that. I didn't ever really learn Pennsylvania Dutch, but I had German classes in school. Gotcha. But you okay. had like a regional um, sort of like an accent. Like for instance, I grew up near Philly. A lot of things I'll say sound very Philly. So. Right had like this regional um accent that when you went to school you kind of tried to suppress is that what you're saying absolutely gotcha yeah so too bad in millersville you'd have to do that for crying out loud (laughs) well i'll tell you what it was real eye-opening when i said to my roommate make the lights out and she had no idea what i was saying i thought everyone said that um My mom had a similar experience in college. They couldn't get over, like, she grew up in Boyertown, but, you know, like I mentioned, my grandmother was super daichi, and she she just had the same experience. Like, they felt like she was like an alien with some things. It was so normal and natural. That's so funny. Now, one thing I wanted to tell you, I did not understand Pennsylvania Dutch growing up. Um, You know, it was not taught to me. 
but right. in school, I took four years of German. So it was at that point that, um, you know, there are very many similarities. So I was starting to understand some of the things that my parents were saying, uh, maybe not completely, but I could kind of put some things together. Um, and, um, and then I even, I had a year of German in college as well. Oh, wow. Um, so I know that right now I'm trying to learn since I have some new German friends, yes. I'm trying to learn more German and I'm always trying to learn more Pennsylvania Dutch. And for me, it's kind of a struggle because sometimes I think I'm saying something in Dutch and I'm actually saying it in German. And although they are similar, they're not the same. One, one thing that I do every week is visit my aunt to help her out. She's 96 years old and lives wow. in a retirement home. She's, she has her own apartment there though, but she was born and raised in Frankfurt, Germany. Her name is Helga. And, um, and so I try to encourage her by bringing some German into her life um, to keep it, you know, fresh in her, her mind. And my friends have been so kind and gracious to her. Um, and, but she was the one that said to me, uh, one time I said something and she said, well, you realize you didn't say that in Dutch. You said that in German. And it's <laughs> like, okay, I'm like, my mind is so totally confused at this point. Uh, but if I say it in Dutch or in German, and they understand what I'm saying. I guess it doesn't matter. Doug and I actually talked about that one time. I said, yeah. you, you know, and he said he even struggles sometime keeping it straight, you know, cause, um, yeah, they're, they're similar. Thank God they're similar. So they can pretty much understand if I say it correctly. Oh, yeah. we have to do the, um, ask a PA Dutch woman. And also, I think it was me, you, and Candace were talking about doing um, carpool karaoke Pennsylvania Dutch version. That would be funny. Oh my gosh! That would be so funny. Oh my gosh! Um, that would be so funny. Yeah, we need um, we need the ladies to answer some questions too. There's a lot there uh, that um, you know, needs a female perspective. But just going back, to sort of, to what you were saying about your grandfather. Um, being very artistic and creative and, and, and doing some craftsmanship. Um, a lot of this book that I'm working on, I'm working on two books simultaneously. One is all the interviews for the other book, kind of like working that out. And then it's going to be transferred into the other body of work. But, um, the, the book that I'm particularly asking about is Pennsylvania Dutch design, um, kitsch and, and more whatever it's called. Um, and, and my, my sort of thesis or question that I need to answer is um, what kept folk art alive during um, the suppression era where people were being, you know, told not to speak the language, not to practice their cultural identity um, traditions and stuff like that. Um, a lot of people seem to think it was the kitsch that kind of brought it back around. And I, I kind of disagree with that because I'm sure you can, 
identify with this. When you, what, from my interviews and just my familial experience, when you are Pennsylvania Dutch or were, um, you probably didn't really participate in like the trends of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Like, um, for example, some of the trendy, uh, textiles or umbrellas were really big for a while. Um, different fabrics and it was really big in fashion for a while, like in the, I'd say like the forties, fifties and sixties, it got really big. Um, and also additionally, I've heard from like family members and other people, you know, if you're a Pennsylvania, you didn't really go to the folk fest because it was for people to learn about Pennsylvania, but it wasn't really for us. Like we weren't now, nowadays, contemporary peoples are going there now to sort of learn more about um, what they maybe feel like is missing from their story. But uh, it's very interesting because I remember asking my grandmother and my mom, like, what do you mean? You didn't go to the Pens- You didn't go to the um, Kutztown Folk Fest like you're right here in Boyertown. But yeah, so I don't know if you agree with that, that you sort of, um, you know, we weren't using the expensive patterns that you'd buy at like uh, Sears that were Pennsylvania Dutch patterns. We were using the old feed sacks and stuff to make our things, you know? Do oh, you sure. kind of- that culturally like it wasn't so these these patterns were not really focused marketing wise for Pennsylvania Dutch people to consume it was more like um I call it in my thesis like kind of a an appropriation in order to sell like this idea but um just speaking about your grandfather um that's really neat how he had all these different disciplines and I wonder how um that transferred to his children and then to his grandchildren. I know you said you were about 10 when he passed, but um, do you feel like for him, it was just part of his culture to practice both the language and simultaneously these different art forms as well. It was just kind of part of the whole picture. And did he, I don't know if you would know this answer, but did he go to school at like a one room schoolhouse where at a time the fractor, the little fractor pieces uh, were very popular to practice your handwriting and then they would kind of d- decorate them. Um, so that's a curious question for you. Um, if how you feel that that aligned for him? Well, I, I think um, Kiefenbachs have always been woodworkers. Mm-hmm. They, they just have been forever. I think you give, Anyway, in in my family, they are give ask them. My dad was a carpenter. I mean, that's oh, what wow. he was a carpenter contractor. But um, you know, my brothers are great woodworkers. His and this goes back to. I mean, this can go through cousins and uncles, and you know, they would they could build anything. Yeah. Um, now, now, as far as uh, I mean, there are others. In my family, definitely are more artists than than others. Um, um, but uh, Victor actually got a lot of talent from his father. His oh, okay. Father, my great grandfather was Jacob, and uh, and if we talk about the organs, then uh, if you would see um, some of the pipes that were painted and so on. Uh, they were painted by his grandfather, Victor. Oh, wow. uh, I no, by his. I'm sorry, Victor's father, Jacob. I'm I'm not that confused. Um, anyway, Victor's father, Jacob, was quite an artist. Um, in fact, uh, he he did um, a Lord's Prayer. The in. I don't actually know if you call it calligraphy. It was a, uh, it was an ink drawing and uh, it's beautiful. And 
I don't know a Diefenbach that doesn't own one of those. Um, oh, wow. But um, I'll, I'll show that to you sometime. And, but the, the, um, the pipes on, on the organ, specifically the one at Altalaha Lutheran Church in Raresburg. Uh, did you ever see this book that I put together? I don't think I have, no. Okay. I think um, I saw There are uh, pictures of the existing Diefenbach organs. But Jacob did painted the pipes on They're the gorgeous. Altalaha Lutheran. They are. They're, it's a gorgeous organ. Um, so that, and that was Victor's father. So, uh, you know, he got a lot of artistic abilities from him. Yeah. Where Jacob got it from, I'm not really sure, but, um. Carol, where can we get that book? Is that through the nonprofit? Is there a way for uh, people? To well, no, actually I just kind of, it, it's a Shutterfly production. Gotcha. So together. So they're not really for sale, but I, I put it together to, um, but maybe that, that's a, that might not be a bad idea actually, but I know, you know, the wheels are turning. I'm like, Hey, if you have some of this art, we should put together a book for your grandfather. <laughs> Sounds really, really cool. I love this idea. And this is sort of, I mean, I'm glad I'm taking a really long time with the book because it's, it's a process and, and sort of a, an aha moment that came to me very recently after tons and tons of time sort of like letting it sit and really thinking about like I was in this mad rush to get this thesis done but then hadn't really sat with the information and interviewing people and and checking my information against people's experiences has been really rewarding and really taken the body of work to a whole nother level in the research and what I'm coming to find is that it was really that transfer between family member or perhaps like I'm um, a mentor, uh, that, that that's where it really was, um, kept, um, alive and a living tradition, the folk art particularly. So I think that's really interesting. Um, but it just sounds like for your grandfather, did he have something that he did professionally that was different? Um, was he involved? So he was a writer was, what was his profession? I'm just curious because, um, was it something uh, of the arts or the creative? Oh, no. I mean, he was a farmer. Oh, okay. Well, that's creative enough. Yeah. <laughs> that's you know what? The Let me just uh, read you something from this one. One thing that I'd like to do, since I knew he wrote articles in different magazines and so on, sometimes I would uh, go on to eBay and just do a search for Victor Diefenbach to see oh. what came up. And then sometimes I purchase the magazines. And oh, a Pennsylvania Dutchman um, from the summer of 1956, there he had an article in here. And in the back of the magazine, it, it had a little um, blurb about, about the authors. And, you know, here was... One of the authors was a director of the Schwankfelder Library. One was a professor at Franklin and Marshall. Uh, one was um, a, a pastor. Um, um, and so on. I, you know, they're like professors and so on. And That's that comes to Victor C. Diefenbach, Bethel, farmer. <laughs> so That's awesome. It kind of cracked me up because... 
like all these other people sound so important, you know. And then there was Victor Diefenbach, farmer, but he was more than a farmer. (laughs) There's nothing more. We can't, we can't even become anything without farmers, right? That's really cool. And I love, I love that. And I'm thinking, duh, why did I even ask that question? Because it's called uh, Der Altbauer. Um, But it's cool that he wrote articles because this whole, this is the part that makes my blood boil. And I know um, Dolores and I talked at nauseum about this, is the whole idea of the dumb Dutchman. um, uh, And that whole whole, um, stereotype is really frustrating. So it's nice to see somebody. And then I'm studying a lot personally about land and place. And I just imagine... So, of course, in my head, I'm imagining your grandfather's experience and being so connected to the land when you're a farmer and that's what you do. Um, and then just honoring it with um, with the writings, the writings that he did and his illustrations are really lovely and, and wonderful little caricatures. I really like them. Um, that's really cool. I like that. I like that it's, you know, all these scholars, scholars, scholars and then a farmer because it's like that's the real the real deal, you know working it firsthand, you know, not just writing about it, but actually experiencing it. I love that. Um, what kind of farm was it? Like, what did he, what did he primarily? Well, um, I think, um, it it wasn't a dairy farm or anything, although they may have, they probably had a cow or two, you know, supply their milk and chicken probably. Uh, I know that he did a lot with, and people came to him for advice on planting and pruning their trees. Nice. And, you know, they, I'm sure he had um, fruit trees and so on. Um, so I, and, and he was also known for uh, his, I, they had sheep, so he could shear sheep and, and that kind of thing. So oh, that's cool. he him for a lot of things like that. So is the farm that he was, was, was farming, is that still in your family? Is that a family farm? Well, now where I grew up, that was a little farm. Uh, it was in the middle of nowhere in host. <laughs> my one nephew owns it now. Oh, cool. Bought it from my father. So. Yeah. We have um, the Fisher farm is like my grandmother was a Fisher olive and her father. So my great grandfather grew up there and it's, it's farm, but they get a lot of, they had their produce stand, but they got a lot of produce from other farms, but it's interesting to, to see how it um, evolves the, the familial farmlands. Um, one of the really neat things about Carol that I came to learn about her just through conversation and she was, um, kind of following my journey with my thesis was that I got interested in exploring the Pennsylvania Dutch gift house out in, um, Charlottesville. Starts with an S, Charlottesville. Charlottesville. And Charlottesville and uh, a very fascinating place and really great people, folks over there, Felicia and um, Dolores that run it or ran it um, in their family. It started in their family and they continued it through. And Carol mentioned to me while I was working on my thesis that she had worked there for a time. Can you talk to us about that? And um, I want to hear one one of my summer jobs when I was in college. um, I worked actually at the snack bar in the gift house um, over at Roadside America. And um, yeah, it was an interesting time. Now, this kind of goes back to one thing you said earlier, like, how did I feel about, you know, did I, um, was I aware of like, 
the Pennsylvania German patterns and, and stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, I probably wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a big deal to us, but, uh, I think I learned more there, like talking to tourists and so on. And, you know, realizing the misconceptions about the Pennsylvania Dutch. I mean, I grew up Lutheran. Uh, the, the, um, I grew up at Altalaha Lutheran Church in Brearsburg. All the Diefenbachs were members of Altalaha Lutheran Church, like back to the 1700s. I was Pennsylvania Dutch. 100% Pennsylvania Dutch, but I was Lutheran. And we'd have tourists that would come to the, uh, one time, I thought this was kind of funny because somebody came in the gift house and said, where can I see Pennsylvania Dutch people? And I kind of went, ta-da, here I am, you know. And they said, no, no, the Pennsylvania Dutch people. Like, where's your uniform? <laughs> uniform there's no <laughs> Pennsylvania Dutch uniform <laughs> they were thinking that all Pennsylvania Dutch people were Amish and mm -hmm. should have had a long skirt and a bonnet on you know in which case I probably wouldn't have even been talking to them you know but yeah. but you know people just had this misconception of of who the Pennsylvania Dutch really were and that's yeah eye-opening to me because I you know when you grow up in an area you think like everyone knows yeah you know that's of like course. I think everyone in the world knows what tasty cakes are and I don't you know um yeah really to experience that it's kind of like holding a mirror up to yourself almost because it happens to us a lot at like the folk fest particularly because in general most people that go to the folk fest aren't very knowledgeable about Pennsylvania um, in general, you know, and it's really interesting because you don't, but it's, it's also kind of a neat learning experience because you realize a couple things. Number one, how special we are. And secondly, that everyone thinks we're Amish, like you said, <laughs> and they, they just can't wrap their head around that. That's a very difficult concept for them, for sure. Well, you know what? And that reminds me now, I also wanted to say that as embarrassing as I thought it was to have a Pennsylvania Dutch accent mm. when a teenager, you know, I, I'm just really darn proud of that right now. Um, yeah. You know, I love our culture. I love that. And I love learning more about it. And I love that, you know, as someone who is getting older as we speak, that mm. There are young people like you that that are embracing it you know thanks for calling me young carol <laughs> uh, well it, it's i'm comparing you to me and you're like really young so oh thank you yeah it, it's interesting too because i think i'm generally like generationally you, you know probably you and my mom are similar in generation and um i think it's interesting because i think there was a shift and I think it's very normal for young people and teenagers to like kind of want to break away from what they grew up with. Um, but it's interesting to me. Um, she moved out of the area completely and took us somewhere else so that we would have diversity. Cause of course, Blairtown definitely not the most diverse place in the, uh, I guess she would have graduated in the seventies. Um, 
But it's so neat to me to watch then the next generation and how we want to come back to the homeland, as it were. Um, and she just, I'm, I'm actually forcing her to move here. So she's like ready to kill me. She loves Bucks County. But um, I said, mom, see, I got you back here. But it's interesting to me how I'm, it, it's almost, it must be cyclical and, and kind of like a pendulum because it's like sort of you push against something and then it kind of pulls you back in, you know? But I think it's normal for people to sort of want to to get out in the world and experience other things, especially if they grew up immersed in it. But then I think it's really nice, like you're mentioning how you come back around to it because I'm, um, you know, from a grandmother, like she went to Westchester, same thing. They actually put her um, in a speech clinic for her accent because it was her first, it was her first um, language as well. And, and she was in that era where they were absolutely not allowed to speak it in public school. Can you imagine <laughs> like now as an educator with ESL classes and all the support that we give, um, English as a second language learners can I cannot even imagine it was not that long ago that this happened. And then the generation before her, Verna, her mother, um, was taught in a in a one room schoolhouse by her dad. And of course, they probably spoke Pennsylvania Dutch the entire time. So right. it's really interesting to see how things shift. But I think that's really neat. And I also think because you are a parent as well, you have a daughter um, that that can see that and can see your connectedness to your culture and share in that experience. And it's something special for you two to share. And it's neat because it's right here. Like it, I'm half Welsh and then half Pennsylvania. And there's no way I can access the, the Welsh culture here, you know, unless I do it online, but it's so neat that I can literally get in my car and drive 10 minutes and be like in my ancestral land that my family had lived on for 300 years. Like that is so unique and amazing and such a, and it's so nice to hear you talk about that. Um, because it's something that we should all rejoice in and, and how special that, you know, your culture is represented by your actual family. And, you know, you can, you can see publications and such like with people in your family. Um, it's really neat. Um, the Oli Valley Heritage Center has like a, a book that they put out and it's a lot of people that I'm related to is in it. It's really, really just such a special experience. So, um, yeah, it's really very cool. So I'm, um, I was a math person, as I said before. That's what I was asking. I didn't yeah. hear anything out, but I couldn't remember anything. History, I didn't care about history, and I couldn't remember names or dates or anything yeah. like that. And I think it wasn't until, um, and maybe this is a, kind of a segue into the organ discussion, that um, the, there was an uh, the organ at Altalaha did not work. My entire childhood, I, it was a piece of furniture on the balcony. I knew it was an organ. I was told it was an organ. It had pipes like an organ, but I never heard it. Um, but when I went to college in the early 70s, um, we <laughs> um, the church decided to have that organ restored. Um, and I know my mother called me and said, you should come home this weekend because they have the organ playing. Well, now I, I've played the, the piano and the organ all my life. And, um, but I'd never heard that one. And I came home that weekend and, uh, and played that organ for the first time and, um, and heard it for the first time. And it it just it was an unbelievable experience for me because I mean my 
my great, let me think, my great, 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 great grandfather built that organ. And there I was sitting there playing it, you know, and uh, it had been dedicated in that it was built for Altalaha and dedicated in that church in 1817. And I, you know, at that point, I just wanted to learn more about the organs and I wanted to learn more about the Diefenbachs and, you know, it, it just sort of things just started working in my mind. And when I realized, and I don't know, maybe teachers need to take this approach more or at least parents do, you know, I found out that, you know, the first Stephen box came here before the revolutionary war. I never associated my family in those events in this country. You know, the mm-hmm. first was built before the revolutionary or, or no, the, the first organ builder was here before the revolutionary war. Um, the Diefenbachs were in America before it was the United States, you know, right. um, arrived in America in, well, actually we came to this area in 1725, you know, that wow. with, Within 10 miles of where I am right now, my ancestors settled there in 1725. Um, and, you know, the, the first organ was built right after the Revolutionary War. Um, I have ancestors that were in the French and Indian War. And, you know, all these things started, oh, well, you know, they all started fitting in. And I could see my family as part of these events that happened in our history. And, you know, it it just makes so much more sense now than it ever did to me in my life. And I can rattle off names and dates like you can't, you wouldn't believe, you know. I could have never done that when I was 20. <laughs> But I can now. <laughs> I can so identify with that. I never really had um, an interest in history until it was my living history and, and the history right. was my family. It's really, really cool. And then connecting my family lineage to these historic events is very, 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 very cool. Very, very neat. I think it's very something very special to Pennsylvania Dutch people because we've been here for such a long time that we are... I mean, certainly we're not indigenous to the country or the land, but we've been here so long that it definitely has a different feeling, I think, for us than um, maybe people that haven't been here for that many generations. You know, I mean, it's just very, it's just incredible. It's just an incredible, um, an incredible honor to be part of a very cool group of people. And I do agree. Um, it's nice to see like this, this generation of just leaders in our community that are doing so much good work to um, sort of put out some of the fires of uh, some of the misinformation that had been spread, you know, mid-century and also um, to educate people and and be really inclusive and make it really accessible. Like you mentioned, Doug, of course, um, and he's just uh, wonderful. We're related too, he and I. 
So that's pretty cool. I just don't, I don't remember why, but, or how, but we are. <laughs> I did less work than you, but I know I found it when I was doing ancestry, which is really neat. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm, and maybe because I didn't grow up here and didn't get to connect to it early on, I feel like it's very new and fresh and exciting for me still. And I've been, we've been here now, uh, since 2014. So I guess almost seven years, um, but it feels so exciting and there's so much more work to be done and so much exciting um, discoveries to be made and connections. Um, we're going to have to figure out how you and I are related. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But um, yeah, so let's talk. I was curious, and I'm sure this was, um, you sort of touched on this a bit. You said you studied math. Um, how did you become musically inclined? Was it something I know, like when I was five, I learned the piano. Was it something you just learned as a kid? You learned how to play the piano. Um, clearly your family's musical, <laughs> but, um, and having been per, uh, very active in the church, maybe you were involved in that aspect, but can you just tell us how you got involved with music and, and started playing? Oh, sure. Um, well, I have two older sisters and when they were younger, they took piano lessons. We always had a piano in our house and uh, my mother could play the piano. Uh, her father could play the piano. So I guess that's where she learned it. But my two sisters had taken piano lessons and so their piano books were still in the house and so on. And when I was even in first grade I was trying to work through some of their early piano books and I had a real interest in the piano and I started taking piano lessons when I was in first grade and oh, wow. I took piano lessons for 10 years and then I did I didn't really feel like I would I don't know I was kind of ready for a change yeah and, so when I was like in 10th grade, I switched to organ. So I took two years of organ lessons then. Wow. So that, that was basically the training that I had. Um, and I just, I, I enjoy playing. I really do. Mm -hmm. I'm a church organist. Um, I've been a church organist since like 1980. Oh, wow. I got my first job, my first regular job as a church organist. Now, I've, I've served different churches over those years, and there might have been a year or two when I wasn't actually playing somewhere regularly. And actually, after my daughter graduated from high school, um, or when she was going to be a senior, I kind of decided, you know, when you're a church organist, you are tied up every weekend. I mean, sure. yes. and you know, we wanted to be able to visit colleges and so on. So I resigned from my position then and uh, took a few years off where I just did substitute work. And, uh, but I was playing just about every Sunday anyway. Um, but I, I have a regular organist position again. It's always been a, a part-time job for me, a second job. And uh, and I do enjoy it. So I, this last year has been really weird, but um, uh, because my church actually isn't meeting right now, uh, except uh, I shouldn't say that. The church is having a 
their church services via conference call. So um, we're, we're just not meeting at the church, but that's kind of weird. This was the probably the first Christmas Eve ever that I've not been in at least one church. So, yeah, no, it's only actually only seven Diefenbach organs remaining. Oh, wow. Yeah. There were four generations of organ builders. Um, the, the oldest organ that remains is at the Berks history center. So wow. that used to be the historical society, Berks County, now known as the Berks history center on seven center Avenue and in Reading. Um, so that was built by Johann or John Jacob. And that's the first organ that was built. And that's the only one that remains that was built by him. And then wow. his son was Christian. And there are two organs that were built by him that still remain. The one was that organ at Altalaha that I was talking about. And the other one is the only one that's out of state. It's in South Dakota, of all places. It's at the <laughs> University of South Dakota. They have an antique instrument museum. And um, there, there was an organ builder that owned that organ, and he died and had no descendants. The estate sold the organ, and they bought it, and that's how it ended up out there. Um, and then the third-generation organ builder was David. And he's the one that built the organ that I have in my house. And that's the only one that's known to have been built by him. And oh, then wow. his son was Thomas. And Thomas probably built more organs than any of the others. And there are three organs by him that are still in existence. Uh, the one is at, at Salem Reformed in Bethel. Mm. Um, that's the only one that doesn't work at this time. It really needs a, a full restoration. So we're hoping to help them with that. Um, uh, there's one at Reed's Church. Well, what was formerly Reed's Church in, in Stoutsburg. Now, that church has folded. And um, that church building and all its contents were sold to some business. So at this point, it's a little unclear. I mean, it, it's no longer a public place. So um, I, we're a little unclear as to what's happening with that organ. Uh, mm. so it, you know, we, we would like to find that out. And the other one is in Pastor Inga's church at Freedens in Charlottesville. They have uh, probably the last organ that was built by Thomas. And they had that restored um, many, several years ago, many years ago. Um, so, and I've played all of them except that one in South Dakota. So that's, that's pretty cool. That's really neat. It kind of reminds me of what, you know, I talked about it and Chris LaRose and I were talking about it. Um, you know, it's like the ancestors working through your hands, you know, it must oh, feel yeah. really really incredible to play those organs. It must be like an incredible experience for y'all. Um, I participated in a program at the Burke's History Center um, like two summers ago. They were celebrating some kind of anniversary. And I actually portrayed my, my um, well, John Jacob's wife, uh, Sabina, 
and and played the organ and talked about the organ that night for their celebration. And it was in practicing for that performance, I was trying to think, well, you know, what what can I play that night? And I thought, well, I should get some music from like that period of time. And it was then that I I realized that, you know, my uh, John Jacob Diefenbach and Johann Sebastian Bach were alive at the same time. Wow. Kind of freaked me out, you know. That's really incredible. I hadn't thought about it before. Yeah. You know, like the music of Bach was period music for my uh, my ancestors' organs, so that's pretty. Cool. I love Bach so much. That's really cool. Yeah, you don't think about the things that are happening all over the world at the same time that your ancestors yeah. going on. That's very cool. Well, you mentioned, and I mentioned um, Pastor Inga. So let's let's segue into talking about the Sangar Corps. Um, the Dolbach Sanger Corps is a Pennsylvania German choir that has been in existence for almost 40 years at this point. Um, they, they are one of the longest, uh, they have one of the longest running shows on BCTV. And I think for some reason, I think it's like 37 years they've been having that TV show. And, wow. Um, the way I got involved with it, well, I, you know, these are people from our area for the yeah. most part. And so I did know some of the people in the Zanger Corps and um, actually the accompanist for the, for the Sanger Corps for many, many years was Edith Reifsnyder and Edith and Vernon were, were both involved in the choir from the very beginning. And their son, Dan, and I grew up together. We were in the same class in high school. We're still friends to this day. Um, anyway, um, so I've always known people on that show, and I watched it and um, so on. And uh, in 2006, I, I know it was then because that's the year my daughter graduated from high school. And... Um, I actually talked to Edie after the baccalaureate service that year. Uh, she had put out um, a request for some help in accompanying the choir, you know, someone to help accompany the Sanger Corps. And at the time, I did not have a regular church where I was the organist. And I thought, well, now that's something I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I contact, or I talked to Edie that that night, and said, you know, I, I can help you do that. So I went to the next rehearsal, and um, for many months, you know, some things I would play and some things she would play. We were still in the old BCTV studio on Penn Street, and they had a real piano there. They don't anymore since they moved to Albright. Um, so I had have to take my keyboard along, but, um, you know, sometimes she would play, sometimes I would play. And the reason she wanted help was, um, she was getting older and she had some problems with her eyes and she couldn't see as well as she always did. 
And although she played very well by ear, you know, you still needed to see the music um, for the most part. And she couldn't do that anymore. So it wasn't too long after that. I just kind of slid into being the regular accompanist. And then she sang in the core. Um, so I've been with the core since 2006. And oh. yeah, so we generally practice once a month and, and have the show once. But now we haven't met since, I guess last March was our last show that we did. Patrick's con continued to do the show, um, doing interviews with people or doing some kind of presentation himself. Uh, I know that I was interviewed, I believe it was for the November show. And um, so he's kept it going, which we really appreciate. We're so lucky that when our former host um, decided she no longer wanted to do it, that, that Patrick agreed to step in. He had uh, been our guest so many times on the show and, and would come and help sing sometimes and so on. So um, I think it's been a great um, um, way for him to promote the things uh, that he is doing in Kutztown. Yes. Yeah. It's been, a, it's, I don't know who was the previous um, host. I think I've seen some older. Yeah. When working on the, the, the publication Asabe and Sabina or Sabina. Um, I remember looking back and they had done some live ones. I think uh, John was involved somehow as one of the characters, but I remember seeing a different host, but it's, yeah, it's been going on a long time. So some of the founding members, I imagine Joyce Hassler must have been involved pretty early on because she's sort of like, yes, yes. Uh, I, and, and John Messner was yes. involved since the beginning. Um, as far as I know, well, and probably, and probably Marianne Klein. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I think everyone else is, is new. If they're not, I'm sorry for saying that. That's okay. Um, well, speaking of new, um, I had spent a couple of months working with you guys and doing some, uh, shows with you and it was a really fun experience for me I was always quite embarrassed <laughs> that I didn't know how to say the Dutch words but everybody was always so wonderful and um it's a really nice nice group and a nice community and that's how I met Inga Williams uh pastor Inga and a couple other folks who have been uh really just a wonderful group of uh people Claudia's in that group too um and then I know like Ashley had done some performances with you guys, maybe before, I guess, probably before she got a teaching job and Amanda Richardson, you know, I think so. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not right. Maybe a couple of times, but yeah, I'm just yeah. I'm like in the, it's been in the atmosphere for me for a long time. And then I saw you guys perform at, um, geez, what was it called? Uh, not Virginville. There was a really small event. Was it the Zomaloff? No. It wasn't the Zomaloff, no. I, uh, yeah, I had seen you guys at the Zomaloff. That was really fun. It was Dribblebus Farm. Dribblebus Farm, I was there with oh, my family, yes. and we were watching you guys, and I remember thinking right after that that I needed to join and be participating in it. <laughs> I think I was very nervous about trying out or, like, auditioning because I can't speak Deutsch at all to save my life. And, you know, but it's neat because – 
the cool thing about singing Daich, especially if you're not a Daich speaker, and I mentioned this in my interview with Doug, um, is it's a lot easier to learn the language through song because you remember songs sometimes like then you do like phrases and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, but Carol, before we end, um, I really, really want to ask you, um, what is your favorite Pennsylvania Dutch song to perform? Oh, oh my gosh. Hmm. Um, well, uh, I probably have a couple of them. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I, and I probably am not going to say them in Pennsylvania Dutch, but there's one that is walking in the sunlight of his love. Uh, that's probably my favorite, um, um, Christian song that we do. Uh, I like the Lustig wander. Uh, it was the happy wanderer of that song. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's a fun one to do. And I think we do it real well and let there be peace on earth. Yeah. Do that as well. That's very cool. My favorite favorite that we did was highly hello. <laughs> oh yeah. It's a fun one to sing. I mean, I just, I love, I love, the old songs love that one. It can do too. Another do. one. Um, we have an annual Diefenbach reunion. I mean, that's been all my life. That has been, especially as a child, that has had always been one of the highlights of my summer going oh. to Diefenbach reunion because all my cousins would be there and so on. And uh, we always sang Schnitzelbank. Oh, shit. Yes. reunion so uh we had the little chart and everything and that um we sang in the afternoon at at the Diefenbach reunion and um and so you know I, I that kind of has a special place in my heart as well when we do that yeah schnitzelbunk is a good one my kids learned that at um the summer camp at the heritage center with um, mary love and that was a really fun experience to see them sing that yeah it's really fun and um if if you have never seen the singer choir core i always do that um perform in the future hopefully um very soon shortly we'll be able to gather again and it's really a fun experience and then um joyce hassler kind of gives a little background about the song usually and then carol is the accompaniment and then there's a nice group of people that are singing in Pennsylvania dutch and it's a really fun experience so check it out um and also you can also always go to bctv and look at the archives too and see some of the performances which is a lot of well, fun actually one other thing that you might want to reference for people to visit is the pennsylvania german hour has a page on facebook and there, uh, you know, I would suggest um, check that check out that page because uh, I put all kinds of stuff Pennsylvania Dutch related on that page. Um, things from Doug Maidenford, things from Patrick and the um, and the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center at Kutztown. Um, every month when we do our show. Um, I put the link to that show on that page. So if you are a subscriber or, you know, if you like that page, uh, you would get that information each month and then you could just watch it, um, from there. 
Yeah, that's a really good page too. Like you mentioned, you share, I didn't realize that you were the one behind <laughs> the magic of that page. Um, you share a lot of really cool uh, culturally um, related uh, posts as well, but really, you know, um, filtered down. So it's really very um, specific to, uh, you know, the real, the real heart of the culture, you know, it's not like um, a sub page or whatever. It's, you know, the, the stuff at the heritage center and all the stuff that Doug does is really, really great page to follow. I will definitely link that in the show notes as well. Um, have you guys, has the choir core, have you put out any CDs or anything? That would be really fun. Well, no, we have um, not. That would be really neat to do. That would be really fun to do. So we'll have to champion for that when we come back together. What do you think? <laughs> um, well, I, you know, we might have copyright issues and all that stuff. So. Yeah. Well, Doug, I'm working on logo for him he's doing singing dutchman productions i'll have to ask him i'll have to bend his ear about it because i know he and uh he and chris did a bunch of songs that were uh, old folk songs and stuff mm -hmm. so maybe we'll have to bend his ear about that a little bit that would be really cool because it's 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 a great sound it's a really great sound but sounds good well carol we are at uh, an hour and 28 minutes i have a lot to cut out though a lot of Hi. My stalling is that you and I could talk for hours. And See, there you go. We should definitely, though, Carol, pick a time and do Ask a PA Dutch Woman, and we can do a live Facebook. Uh, you let me know. I'm free all the time now. You okay. let me know. We'll do a Facebook live, definitely not on a Friday night. Nobody's around. <laughs> I was goofily talking to myself last night like a silly person, but um, yeah. It's hit or miss sometimes. I always figure people are around, but I'm sure people have gotten accustomed to this way of life in some ways that they have other things to do. <laughs> right? That would be really fun though. Um, I would love to do that with you. And uh, between the two of us, we should be able to handle a, a lot of the questions, right? I would hope so. And I think we have good chemistry like Doug and Chris too. I think we'd yeah, have. We do we'd have a good time. That would be really fun. So we'll have to set that up. <laughs> Carol, thank you so much. I want to mention too, Carol has been extremely um, supportive and been a wonderful customer and collector of mine and um, enjoyed my artwork. And it's really meant a lot to me. Um, somebody so emblematic of all things Pennsylvania Dutch in my mind, you know, uh, they grew up in the culture, recognizing my work as something special means a lot to me. And I just adore when you post and share the different things that you have collected throughout the years, especially the Christmas tree. What a lovely surprise to see all of the things together. Because once they leave my house, I forget about them sometimes, you know? <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. I love it so much, Carol. So I really, really appreciate your support. It makes me feel really, really joyful. Yeah, the Yoder room. Yoder room. Collection. I really love that. I love, I, and I like the style that you are drawn to as well. So we share a love for the faces as flowers motif. Oh my gosh. That's my favorite. Me too. That was my first piece, you know, my first fractor I ever did. It's very, very special to me. I love it so much. And you're a friend of Candace's as well. And she's the one that sort of opened my mind up to uh, what it might've potentially meant to the artist's that we're creating it and maybe what it meant was um, 
sort of like a memorial of sorts. Uh, when you think about the Day of the Dead skulls for for Mexican culture, that idea of remembering someone and remembrance. And and I always think of going back into the earth. And, you know, you think about like graves and being back into the earth. Uh, so the whole thing just makes a lot of sense to me and makes me feel really special. And it feels like the number one motif to... Um, visually explain the connectedness to our ancestors and why it's so important. So I, I appreciate you valuing that as well. And thank you again, for all of your support and love. And we just adore you, Carol. And thank you for sharing your story with us today. Oh, you're quite welcome.